Well, good evening. As always, it is a joy for me, and I cannot stress it enough, Sunday night after Sunday night, Sunday morning after Sunday morning, to come and uh, fellowship with you all, and most of all, to worship with you all. And it is indeed a great God that we worship. I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of the book of James. We've been working our way through James with the time that we have on Sunday nights. We're going to pick up tonight in verse 9. First, uh, excuse me, James chapter 1 and verse 9. This is God's word. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Thus the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Would you pray with me? Father, now, as we, your people, who've been washed white with the blood of Christ, draw near through that same blood, we would ask that if we would see anything in your word, if there would be any progress, if there would be any gain, let it be founded upon Christ and Christ alone. It is in his precious name that we pray. And amen. And amen. So, we have seen in these first few verses in the book of James, uh, firstly, we talked of verse 1 and who had uh, wrote this epistle, who had wrote this book, and we identified that as James, the brother of Jesus. We had then seen that he had charged the, the exiles, the, the church, I believe, to count trials as joy. And we had talked of the inner workings of that and how it is that a man can go through trials, and yet though he doesn't like the trial in and of itself, that he can count that trial indeed as joy. And that's because the supremacy of Christ in that individual's life, the reason for his suffering, you see, his love for Christ outweighs it all. We had then seen last time that um, for those who lack in that area, uh, James had said, for those who lack wisdom, he had instructed simply, Ask God, do you lack wisdom? And we had identified that as the wisdom to endure those trials, the wisdom to count those trials as joy. For we all know that sometimes things come against us, sometimes suffering comes our way, and it seems as though it will bring us uh, to the end. It seems as though this will be the end of our faith, and we don't know how our lives could ever be the same beyond that point. And so when we face those things, James says, ask. And we looked at that last time, and that is asking as a son, asking as a daughter, understanding that Jesus and Christ and God want the best for us. Christ and the Father, I should say, want the best for us. Now, that is not always the bigger house. That is hardly ever the bigger house. That is hardly ever the nicer car. But those things in which we need, wisdom to suffer rightly, wisdom to suffer and give God glory in it, that he will give. That he will give. He will uh, hold fast those he has redeemed, you see. It is something that God will in fact do. And so we can count on that. We can stake our lives on that. Do you lack wisdom? Do you truly Uh, know God, do you truly trust in God, then ask Him for the wisdom you need because He is the one who has it. If you are to gain it from anywhere, you have to gain it from God, you see. So, we are now uh, coming off of that and springboarding off of something that James said in verse 8. We didn't get to talk about it last time just for the sake of of time, but James had not only talked about the one who asks asks for wisdom and faith, if you recall, but he had talked about that man who asks for wisdom in doubt. Remember, we had talked about that last time. And James had identified that one as a double-minded man. 
right? You can just, if you're scanning in your Bible there, you can see in verse 8, he's addressing that one who would uh, 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 have doubt when he asks. And he says, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, that's what he had said about him. And what I want to stress here is a major theme that we are going to see in the book of James. A major theme that we are going to see in the book of James. And that is a holistic Christianity. A holistic Christianity. And what I mean by that is that a true Christian is one in all aspects of life. A true Christian is one in all aspects of life. Those who are truly born of God do not compartmentalize their lives. Right? And so what you do is you have uh, the, the, the version of themselves who goes to church on Sunday, and then you have the version of themselves who goes to work on Monday and swindles and robs and does everything that they can that is not Christ-like. You see? And what James is going to do, and this is very important, This is why interpretations of James chapter 2 go so haywire. (laughs) They don't understand what James is building up to here. Uh, He's pushing against this idea that you can have uh, uh, compartments of your life. That some things are not given to God, you see. That yes, well I devote this to God over here, but this over here is my own to do with what I please. That's not true Christianity. That's not true Christianity. When God saves someone, He saves them to the uttermost in all that they are, in every aspect of life. No matter location, no matter day of the week, no matter month, no matter year, no matter season, if you be in Christ, you are a Christian and you are to live as such. You see, this is the the pushback. You are not to be double-minded like this man who doubts. You see, we addressed that last time, right? That's someone who simply gives lip service and doesn't believe the things that he says. Right? He says one thing, and the reason that we know it's lip service is he does another. Right. You see? He doesn't have true faith. He doesn't believe what, he, what comes out of his own mouth. And so what James wants for us, uh, what he wanted for his readers at the time, and by extension what he wants for us, is a holistic Christianity, which is simply just Christianity. <laughs> it's just Christianity. Christianity in and of itself is holistic. It takes all that you are. It takes all of your being, right? And Christ will have no less. Understand that. Christ will have no less. He won't have 70% of you. He won't have 90% of you. If you be in Christ, you be fully in Christ. You see, we need to understand that. We live in a society that wars against that. We live in a society that, that doesn't preach very well. That's clearly what the Bible is telling us. And so we need to conform to it. So that's what James is uh, pushing on here. This, the, the push against this idea that you can uh, live your life in uh, compartments, in sex. So um, uh, now we are going to see James branch off of that. And he's going to go into a, a, an area um, uh, that most people do not like. He's going to go into the area of economic status. He's going to go into the area of economic status. He's going to go into wealth and your standing within society. Okay, this, this is what he's going to... We, we see again this, this uh, uh, idea of two people, right? We've seen two people before. The brother who asks in faith, the, the one who asks in doubt. And now we are going to see the rich man and the poor man. The rich man and the poor man and how they uh, should Act, And just seeing this in, 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 in the first of all, in this idea of a holistic Christianity, turn to Matthew 13 with me. We'll, just, we'll spring, try to springboard off of this. The words of Christ himself. Matthew 13, verse 44 there. 44. Hear the words of Christ. Christ says, Then uh, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, 
which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So we we can see here what Jesus prescribes to his disciples. And what he's telling them is the value of the kingdom. The value of the kingdom that he's going to bring in. This is very important to his disciples at the time because they were going to be the ones who were persecuted for it. You see? So they needed to know the value of the kingdom. If you're going to stake your life on something, and this is... Critics don't get this of the Bible. You don't stake your life on a lie. You don't stake your life on something that doesn't have any value. You see, you stake your life on something that has more value than your life. You see, and that's just what he's telling the disciples here. This is how the kingdom of heaven is, right? It's like this treasure you find in a field. And it's worth so much, you give up everything else and you buy that field. You see? You give up everything, all that you have. And it's not as if you have to do it. It's not as if, well, now that I've found this treasure, I have to give up everything that I have. It's that you find joy in doing so. You give up all that you have just to gain that field. You give up all that you have just to gain Christ. You see? All that you have, all riches, all wealth, all prestige... You let it all go in the face of Christ and His kingdom. You bring it all to naught. We need to understand that. Right before we go into looking at how the poor man should live and how the rich man should live. This should be the backdrop to how we see these things. Because if we don't put value in Christ and we don't put value in His kingdom, these things won't make sense. You see? This, This rich man being humbled won't make sense. You see, unless we see it in light of the kingdom of God, unless we see it in light of the value of Christ. You see, I want to I establish that. So, with all that said, let's jump back into our text in verse 9 there. Back in verse 9. This is what James says, jumping off of that double-minded man. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Uh, This lowly brother here uh, would have been uh, a poor Christian. It would have been a Christian who didn't have much. And most likely, uh, judging by the way that economics worked at the time, this would have been a Christian who had a master. This would have been a Christian who was a slave, you see. Because at the time, and what historians see, is there was no middle class, right? There really was no middle class. There were families that kept wealth and kept servants, and there were servant families that continued on to be servants. You see, you didn't really have a middle class. Some people maybe, but the majority of people fell in those two categories, And those are the two categories in which James is dealing here. So here we have, first of all, this lowly brother. But we are told, kind of the same way that we are told to joy in trial, this lowly brother is told to do something that doesn't make sense. And what is that? To boast. This lowly brother is told to boast. And your question may be, what is this slave going to boast in? What is this slave going? going to boast in and we are told in the text it's in his exaltation it's in his exaltation it's the fact that although the world doesn't prescribe much value to him although the world sees him as something lesser than God has seen fit to exalt him in Christ God has seen fit to not just call him a servant but call him a son you see This is his exaltation. That although the world says one thing about him, that doesn't matter in the slightest because God has said the direct opposite. God has given him an inheritance, you see, and that inheritance is Christ. That inheritance is greater than anything the world could offer, you see. 
And so this is what he boasts in, you see. He can see the world as it is. He can see the rich man. He can see all the fine clothes, all the fine houses that they have, and he can count it as worthless in the face of Christ, his inheritance, you see. So boast, James says. Boast that God has exalted you. Boast that God has raised you up from this dust heap that you found yourself in. You see, this is to be the boast of the poor man. Not only that, but uh, in that, what is happening here is the poor man has seen his true state. And it's not one of simply being an earthly slave. You see, that wasn't his biggest problem. Being an earthly slave wasn't his biggest problem. His biggest problem was being a slave to his own sin. See, John 8. John 8. What does Jesus, what does Jesus say though? Let's just turn there together. John 8 and 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are uh, offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see? He said if you continued, you'd be set free. That's the language of slavery, you see? To gain your freedom from this sinful body. This is what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about uh, uh, perseverance of the saints here. right? That you persevere if your faith is true. We will get on that into the next verses of of James. And the response of the the people at the time there, of the the Jews, is whoa, whoa, whoa. What has happened here? Their pride has been hurt. Their pride has been hurt. Whoa, we're not slaves. Don't, Don't use that language about us. Right? We're not slaves. We're of Abraham, you see. He had hurt their pride. But Jesus tells them what? If you sin, you're a slave of sin. If you sin, you are indeed a slave of sin. You are in bondage to sin. But praise God, He doesn't leave it there. It's not as if God has just revealed to us that because we sin, we are a slave to sin. But it's that God has done something about it in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Beautiful portion of Scripture here. Titus 3 and verse 3. Listen how Titus speaks. Oh, listen how uh, Paul speaks here. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see what Paul says there? Paul was a great Pharisee of the Jews. Paul, who was supposed to be one that was on top of the law, who understood the law completely, who had probably memorized the law in his youth. What does he say? We were slaves. (laughs) Listen to me. We were slaves. We were slaves and we we hated others and they hated us. You see, but what happened? God. God happened. And He saved us. Not because we were great men. Not because we deserved to be exalted. But because of His own love and mercies. That's why God has saved us. Not by the works of our own hands. This is the exaltation that the poor man is to boast in. This is what he boasts in. When the world comes his way and says, look at you, you are nothing. You barely own the clothes that's upon your back. Right? You don't even own a place to live. You live in your master's house. 
You rely on your master's bread. He could say, yes, this is true. In this world, I do not have much. But in the world to come, I will gain everything in the face of Christ. In the world to come, I will have more than anything that my rich master has ever seen, has ever owned in Christ. You see, this is his boast. This is what he boasts in. This is how he can find joy in suffering. This is how he can find joy in trials. And when you see that, when you see the value of Christ and his kingdom, all the things of this world fade away. All the things of this world are not. Because no amount of slavery, no amount of poverty, right, can equal uh, to that. No amount of slavery can equal to the amount of slavery that you had in your own sin. The amount of bondage that you had in your own sin. That Christ has now lifted from you. The chains in which Christ has taken from you. Right? In comparison to that, the chains that any man can put upon you, they are nothing. They are nothing at all. Now, I do want to warn us, and in, in, in studying for this, I didn't want to spend more time on the rich than the poor. That seems as how it's, it's come out, but I do want to give us a warning here uh, for the poor. What I'm not speaking about here, and, and James clearly defines this, I want you to notice that this is nothing like the monastic traditions that we see uh, in church history. And what I mean by that is that this is not just being poverous uh, for poverty's sake. You see what I'm saying? This is not boasting in your poverty. You see? It's not as if James is saying, well, you know, those of you that are poor, you're better than those that are rich inherently because you're poor. It's not as if you could say to your brother who says to you, I haven't eaten in five days, you can puff out your chest and say, well, I haven't eaten in ten. So I'm more holy than you are. You see, that's, if, if, if that's where you go, and that's where some have gone in church history, they've thought because they lived on pillars and had men bring them food and barely had the clothes on their back that they were something closer to God. It's not true. It's not true at all. You see, those physical things didn't bring them closer to God at all. So I want us to push back against that. That's not what James is saying here. If he was saying that, he would simply have said, boast in your poverty, right? Boast in your poverty. But that's not what he says at all. He says, boast in your exaltation. Boast not in what you do. Boast in what God did for you. That's where you find your boast, you see. Men, as sinful as they are, will take something like poverty and make it a holy game. You see, they will. Study church history. There's been men come along that have said something uh, of the sort. So we need to guard against that as well. Now, going on into verse 10 of our text. Verse 10a there. Look in the first part of verse 10. He says, And the rich in his humiliation the rich in his humiliation now first of all i want us to notice i'm not going to go into great depth here because there's much theological debate in the way sentence structure here is in the greek to know whether or not this rich man is a believer but just notice in our text that it had said the lowly brother but now it has went on to just say the rich man you say so it, it didn't connect brother to him within the same verse there. Now, some would say that he's just branching off of what he said about the lowly brother. So, he's giving us this dichotomy. Poor brother, rich brother. Right? In the same way, rich brother. That's what James is getting at here. Some say that's not the case, and he's speaking of uh, two opposites here. That the rich brother is the lost man, and the reason for that being is the way that you see the, the language of the destruction of the flower and the grass, right? I would say, and just for the sake of this, I'm going to act as though the, the rich brother is also a Christian. And that the connection here, uh, that same brother in verse 9 uh, connects down to verse 10. You see, and so he had said the rich brother, and then in the same sense he had said 
uh, uh, or the poor brother in the same sense he had said the rich man connecting him to that brother. And what he's talking about is the same thing that he's going to talk about in chapter 2. In chapter 2, in the the first few verses there, he's going to talk about the dynamics of rich people that come into the church and poor people that come into the church. Mainly, you can scan verse uh, chapter 2 there, the beginning verses, mainly that at this time, rich Christians were coming into the church and the, the people of the church were giving them more honor than the poor, right? They were saying, come and sit up here. And they were giving them more value just off of their riches. And so I would say in the same sense, and really what we are seeing in chapter 1, as most theologians have uh, seen and categorized, it can seem as though James is jumping from topic to topic, right? Just in these few verses, we've jumped from topic to topic to topic. But what James is doing, I believe, is in chapter 1, he's giving us an index, a thought index, for what he's going to address in the rest of the book. And so, all these things that we've already covered and will cover in chapter 1, he's going to address those further in the rest of the book, you see. He's going to address uh, trials, right? He's going to address this this, uh, uh, economic in the church between the rich and between the poor. So for the remainder of the sermon, I'm going to count the, uh, uh, if you disagree with me, that's fine. Some theologians do. But I'm going to count the rich man here as a believer as well. And what he's doing is he's giving advice in the same sense to the poor man, to the rich Christian, and how he ought to act and how he ought to live his life. So, just setting that up there. Um, so we are, he tells the, the rich man in the opposite sense here, right? Not to boast in his exaltation, but to what? Boast in his humiliation. <laughs> you see, he tells the rich man, it's kind of the opposite, right? Uh, the, the poor man boasted because he was of nothing in society and God had raised him up in the opposite way. The rich man needs to boast because the Lord has brought him low. He was high in society's ranks, right? He thought himself something, and God showed him that he was actually nothing. You see, God showed him that he was enslaved to sin just like the poor man was. You see, this is what he is to boast in. Uh, With the rich man, we have lots of complications here. We can just see one in Matthew 19, the words of Christ there. Matthew 19 Grab some water as you turn there. Look in Matthew 19, starting verse 23 there. Matthew 19, verse 23. Uh, just for context, in 13 and down, the, the rich man, the rich young man had come to Jesus your call and he had said what how do i gain eternal life and jesus had said you you know obey the commandments and the the rich young man said no problem done them from my youth right it's in the bag you know give me my eternal life in a sense is what he was saying and jesus would say said very well go say what you have and come on pointing to the epicenter of where he put his value you see it was in his riches what happened to that rich young man? Huh? Went away sorrowful, right? Look at 22 there, just to, just to cap off the context. It says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see? What did he put value in more, Christ or his things? His things, you see? It wasn't true faith, was it? He wanted eternal life, but it was just something tied to his riches. You see? It was just something to add to his arsenal of goods, right? He said, oh, this, this prophet's giving out eternal life. I'll add that to the things I already have. And Jesus had thrown that idea away when he had said, oh, fantastic, give up all you have and come after me, right? wasn't worth it to him, so he went away sorrowful. Then Jesus gives us this insight in 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a 
camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So here we already see on the onset of this rich man, this rich Christian, I believe, that his life is one of difficulty. His life is one of difficulty in that the, the rich man doesn't have to deal with. The rich, the rich Christian doesn't have to deal with the things that the rich, uh, uh, or the, the lowly Christian doesn't have to deal with the things that the rich, rich Christian will have to, right? And here we find what I would like to call the great disadvantage of the rich, right? Doesn't seem right to say that, does it? How are, you might say, how are the rich disadvantaged? This is it. This is the great disadvantage of the rich. That in, to follow after Christ, they have to give up far more than the poor do. You see, in this life, the rich Christian has to leave behind, has to cast aside far more things, far more wealth, and far more temptation than the lowly brother will ever experience. That's the great disadvantage of the rich. You see, it's so inherently bad to have things, but this is indeed a disadvantage. This is something that the rich, if they be in Christ, have to constantly be on guard of. The rich Christian must live a life completely dedicated to God in the same sense that the poor Christian has to live a life completely dedicated to God. But the rich Christian has a lot more to dedicate. <laughs> you see? You see what I'm saying? Every cent of our finances should be dedicated to God in one way or another. Whether that's building our families to glorify God, or whether that's working to give God glory. You see what I'm saying? All of our finances should be dedicated to the Lord in that holistic Christianity. Right? It's not just us. It's also what we have. You see. Now take that. Take what you have and multiply it by millions. Do you see the struggle there? All that as well has to be mastered. All that as well has to be in the service of God. Because if it's not in the service of God, then it's in the service of sin. You see? This is the great struggle. I'm not saying this is easy. This is hard. This is the great struggle of the rich brother. That he has to look at these finances and he has to go above and beyond what the, what the poor man does to tame them and to put them under Christ's feet. You see? This is what he must do. What, remember what Jesus had said in just Matthew 6 there. Matthew 6. Jesus gives us more insight into this. Jesus says in Matthew 6 and 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see? You cannot serve God and money. You just can't. You are unable to do so. Spurgeon summed up this passage greatly. I love this. Just listen to what Spurgeon had to say about this. It is hard to keep great riches without sin. It is hard to keep great riches without sin. He goes on. Listen to what he says. He's speaking to his congregation here. Walk warily, successful friend. Growing wealth will prove no blessing to you Unless you grow in grace as well. Man, he hit it on the head there. You see what he's saying? You see what Spurgeon's saying? Right? It'll be no blessing to you. This wealth that you have, this gold that you've struck, it'll be no blessing to you unless God grows you in His grace and knowledge of Him along with that wealth. Because what will happen is that wealth that seems great at one point in your life will become your master. 
You see? And in this sense, we can see that these men who don't pray for wisdom daily, who don't seek the things of God in their great wealth, they end up worse than the poor. Right? A man whose money is his master is worse off than the poor. It would be better for him to be poor than to let his money master him and become an idol to him and become a snare to him. You see? Man, we can't see that. We cannot see that. In a culture that seeks after nothing but gain and nothing but wealth, monetary wealth, can't see that, can they? In my youth, I would look upon the rich. I would look upon the people who seemingly have everything. And I would ask God, why are these things so? Why is the godly Christian woman living in the shack? And why is the pagan man who blasphemes God daily living in the mansion? Right? Have you ever wondered that? I have. God has shown me this through His Word. That those great things are bondage to that man. Those great things are, as Josh spoke about this morning, God saying, you want to live your life for that? Go after it. Go after it. I'll turn you over to it. I'll let you dedicate your life to something that is pointless. I'll let you dedicate your life to something that has no value in eternity. You see... It's not great. It's condemnation. You see how the, the unrighteous prosper? It's not blessing. It's the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God upon that individual. We don't want to see it that way because we invest everything in this world. We invest everything in monetary gain. But it is. It's judgment. A man who has not mastered his wealth is a slave to his wealth. You see... This is what we have to, to war against. This is why the rich are to boast in their humiliation. It is because God has showed them what is of true importance. God has showed the rich man, just like the poor, but in a different sense, what is of true importance. It's not their wealth. It's not their wealth. It's their eternal state. Right? It's not what they gain on this earth. It's what they gain in eternity. Right? It's not if they're a slave or a free man. Right? On this earth. It's if they'll be a slave or a free man in eternity. Those are the things that matter. And for those who are Christians, who are rich, God has showed them this. He has opened their eyes to the importance of Christ above all that they have. And so, it is easy to let go of that which is inferior. Do you see? In the light of Christ and His glory and grace, it is easy in that light to let go of all things that are inferior. This is why the rich man boasts in his humiliation. This is why he sees his monetary wealth as inferior, as not, as loss, as Paul says. This is what the blood of the martyrs throughout church history testifies to. The value of Christ and His kingdom. It's what it testifies to. Every stake that was set ablaze. Every hangman's noose that was put upon the neck of a believer. Every rack of torture that the Christian has endured has testified to this one fact and this one fact alone that Christ is greater than it all. And they've sealed that testimony with their blood. They sealed it with their lives. You see. This is what rings out throughout history. Greater is He. Greater is He. More than anything you could gain. Christ is greater. All else is inferior. Give it all up. 
Now, to the one who does not ascribe value to Christ in this way, I'm speaking of the rich who would not ascribe value to Christ in this way, James gives this warning, right? Coming off of uh, 10 there into 11. Let's turn back to our text. Back in our text, James chapter 1. Look in the second part of 10 and then 11. So he says, The rich and his humiliation, because, this is the reason for it, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So it's... it's Verses like these that have caused a lot of theologians to identify James as wisdom literature. Right? It's this language. This language of uh, foliage, of grass, of nature. A lot of people have identified James. And just the practical nature of the book, they've identified James with li- wisdom literature. Um, I'm fine with that. I think we can definitely see themes like that within the book. Some, some theologians argue against that. Of course they do. Theologians argue about everything. But I think we can see those themes. If you don't agree with that, that's fine. No problem there. But that's why some, just showing you, will see James as wisdom literature. He, he plays off of these themes from uh, previous wisdom literature and, and previous prophets. So, but what he has told us here is that the rich are but grass. So why should the rich boast in their humiliation? James tells us it's because the rich are but grass that is here one day and vanishes the next. You see, you see your beautiful grass, you see your beautiful flowers that you uh, plant in the spring and summer. They come up in all their beauty and all their glory, right? Something to behold. And what happens in just a season's time? They become black, right? So the sun comes out. Perhaps the seasons don't even change, but the sun comes out and it scorches that grass. It scorches that flower and all its beauty is gone in but one day. You see? It's nothing. It passes away in the blink of an eye. Eighty years of wealth. Listen to me closely. Eighty years of wealth that the world has never seen will be but a blink, will be but a day in comparison to eternity. You see? It will account for nothing. The richest man on this earth with all of his billions and all of his power, within eternity, that will account for nothing. You see? He will either have hope in Christ or he will be damned just as the poor man. You see? That will account for nothing for him and it will be gone in a moment. So, the, the reply to some may be, well, of course it's easy for James to say this. He's a poor man, right? If you look at James's life, being a brother of Jesus, being a carpenter's son, well, he didn't have much anyway, right? It's easy to give up. See what I'm saying? What do you got? You know, shacking some cattle, a fishing boat. It's easy to give up, right? So I'd like to say that if we're not going to take it from James, which we should anyway, because he speaks for God, then we'll take it from Solomon. Take it from Solomon. Ecclesiastes. Look at Ecclesiastes with me. Ecclesiastes in 5. Now Solomon was rich. Solomon was a wealthy king of Israel. Solomon had such great wealth that all the nations around Solomon come just to look upon his wealth. You see? This is how great he was in his kingdom. Right? He was a man who knew what it was to be rich. He was a man who knew what it was to have power. Look what he says here. 
5.13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a, a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his tool that he may carry away in his hand. See what Paul, oh, Paul see what Solomon is saying here? Well, I believe Solomon. That's another debated thing. But I believe Solomon. Right? See what he's saying here? This man held on to his riches. He made it the value of his life. And in one venture, right? One trade. One deal. One shipwreck. He lost all that he had. And when he leaves this world, he will leave this world as he came into this world with not even the clothes that's on his back. You see? So where do you put your value? That's the question. Where do you put your value? In the perishable or the imperishable? It's a question for all of us. James in his speaking here of the, of the flower and the grass is hitting off of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, we could turn there together. Give us some more insight into what James is getting across here. Isaiah 40 and 7. It says, The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. So he sees in that same sense. Right? The rich man's but grass. Isaiah says, people are grass. Everybody. This goes for everybody, not just the rich man. The people are but grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You see? People go. People live and people die. Empires Listen to me. Entire empires rise and fall and God stands the same. God's Word stands the same. In this context, it's Babylon, that great empire, right, that they are going to go in the hands of versus what God has said in light of the redemption, you see. That empire is going to fall. Men are going to die. But what God promises to you will stand forever. This is what I want us to understand from this. We may look out on the world and it may seem at times to have us. It may seem at times as there's no hope at all. But if God has said, if God in His Word has said, I will come again and all things will be mine and all things will be put beneath my feet, we can count on that. We can stake our lives on that. Because although people are grass, the Lord is not. Although people's kingdoms fail, the Lord's kingdom does not. You see, that's where you stake your hope. You stake your hope on what God has said about you, not what man has said about you. You see, has God called you a son? Has God called you a daughter? <laughs> well, then you're a son. Then you're a daughter. Let go of how the world sees you. The world sees Christianity as nonsense. The world casts Christ aside in all that they do. The world takes the order in which God has established and they spit in the face of God and say we can mix this up however we want. That's what the world does. Let it all go. Let it all burn. Because in the same way, that empire, the empire that we're seeing today of these leftist people who want to come on the scene and, and say these things, they will be like grass as well. We've seen them before. Babylons have come and gone. This is just the newest one. And you know what happens when they're gone? One will come up in their stead if the Lord tarries. But when the Lord comes back, all will be put to an end. That will be the end of the regime. That will be the end of the Babylons. You see, any of them that come up. 
That's our hope. That's our hope, church. Don't forget it. Please don't forget it. There is so much despair that I see in the world today. And it's easy to get that way. You turn on the news, so much despair in the world today. What has God said about your end? What has God said about His church? It will conquer. It will conquer this world. Let's find hope there and nowhere else. So, moving on. We've got to see that the things that endure are the things of God. James says this, he says, But the rich pass away in the midst of their pursuits. See what he adds there at the end of 11? Right? He says they're but grass. They're scorched by the sun. And not only do they pass away, they pass away in the midst of their pursuits. You see, while the rich man is still grabbing onto this world and saying, give me more, give me more, because he's never satisfied, that is when he meets his end. That is when he's snuffed out. And that's when the judgment of God comes upon him. You see, the rich aren't satisfied. The rich aren't satisfied. Show me a wealthy man and I'll show you, for the most part, someone that's not satisfied. It's true. It's a snare to most. And it shouldn't be that way. In the midst of those pursuits, in the midst of trying to find an ounce of happiness in their wealth, the rich will be gone. The rich will be no more. And God will require their lives. When I was younger, first in the ministry, I read a book by John Piper called uh, Don't Waste Your Life. And in that book, he gives a poem. I forget the name of the one who wrote it. But sometimes in my life, even to this day, that was probably eight or nine years ago I read that book. But in my life today, when I'm in certain circumstances, it rings true to me still. And this is just one part of it. But it says this, Only one life, it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see? And those words have rang in my ears for the majority of my ministry. When you look on the things of the world, and they can at times, even to the believers, seem appealing, right? And they got it good. Look at all those things. All you have to do is sin a little and you get all that thing, all those things. You get all that gain, you see. All you have to do is cheat a little and you get all that gain. That can look appealing sometimes. It's all nothing. It all amounts to nothing. It is only the things that we do in this life that is for Christ that will have any bearing in eternity of value, you see. And for the rich man, the sad thing is that most wealthy people in the society, the only way in which they will glorify God is when God brings His judgment down upon them and shows that He is just. That's the only glory they'll give Him. They'll give Him glory nonetheless, but it'll be in judgment. Let's not be like that, church. Let's not desire for those things, but let's desire for the things of God. Now, just to close this out here in the way of application, um, I want us to see something in our text. It was easy for me in studying this week, and uh, I imagine it's easy for all of you, that when we see this dichotomy, to place ourselves in one of the camps and then be quick to tell the other camp what they should do. Right? You've probably already done it in your mind. It's easy to do, right? I, I was close to doing it myself. It's easy to look at this and say, poor man, rich man. Oh, of course, I'm the poor man, those rich over there. You see? That's what we want to do in our human nature, isn't it? Right. But I want us to take caution here. Hear me. Take caution here. Right? Take caution to where you place yourself in this dichotomy, especially considering that uh, in a study that I searched this week, two billion people in the world don't have running water. You find yourself poor? You have running water? Right? You see, we look at America, 
And we say, we're pretty, we're pretty poor, right? We don't look at the world. We don't look at the world. There's people out here that would look at our lives and say, you live the wealthiest life I've ever seen. You see? That's what we need to look at, right? James is not just talking about America economics, American economics here. He's talking about the world. You see? The world. And we have brothers and sisters all across it. We don't think about them enough, but we do. In the most remote parts of the world, I have brothers. I have sisters. They are my family. Right? We are united to the same Christ. And they have it a lot worse off than we do. I can tell you that. So don't be quick. Don't be quick to place yourself in that poor category. But besides that, here we have a real, real danger. A real danger. One that works itself out within eternity. And that is this. Both for the rich and the poor, that they would find identity in something in this world, whatever it may be, and not Christ himself. This is the real problem. This is what James is pushing against, I do believe in both poor categories and rich categories, that you would identify yourself in your daily life with anything besides Christ and Christ alone. You see, that the poor man would identify himself in his poverty, right? That the rich man would identify himself in his riches and let those things become idols to them. As Christians, we cannot. As Christians, we cannot. Christ is the totality of our lives if we be in Him. He's everything. He's all that we are. I spent, I don't know how many sermons trying to get that across, trying to let us just see but a glimpse of it. And I feel as though I didn't scratch the surface of what it truly means to be united to Christ. To be united to our Savior. Don't find your identity in this world. Don't find your identity in politics. Too many people do. Find your identity in Christ. And all that He is. Years ago there was a so-called Christian movement that wasn't Christian at all. And what it propagated and what it said was this. It said there are Christians who are indeed homosexual, but they do not practice. So therefore, it's okay to have those thoughts. And they identified themselves blaspheming Christ as gay Christians. I tell you today, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. I say that in all love. There's no such thing as a gay Christian. But what they, they did is they chose to identify themselves with their sexual desire instead of Christ Himself. Right. That's blasphemous, church. That's idolatry. That's idolatry in its finest. You can paint it up and put it in a pew all day long. That's idolatry. And you can do that with anything, not just sexual sin. And we must be on guard. We must be on guard. For the sake of Christ. For the sake of His name. For the sake of the one in whose name you bear. If you call yourself a Christian, you have took upon yourself the name of Christ. You have said, I am seeking after Christ. I desire in my being to be Christ-like. Don't dishonor Him in that. And identify yourself with something other than Him. Let our lives be totally and supremely ruled by Christ. Let our lives be totally and supremely ruled by Christ's Word. By what He has told us in His Word. Let that be your compass for your life. Not what the world says. Not what your friend group says. Not what will make you the most profit and gain in this world. No, no, no. What Christ says. 
what Christ has deemed a worthy life. Let that be the tune of our lives. And let us cling to Christ, casting off the things of this world, hoping for that that endures. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we are but grass. We acknowledge that just like that flower, just like the greenery of the field, it is one day here and the next day gone. But it is in this time, this time of exile, this time of wandering in the wilderness before we reach that promised land, that we would seek to glorify Christ in all that we are. And I pray that you would help us as your church, as those who have been united to Christ, to glorify Christ all the more in our lives. And if there be any blemish, if there be any spot that would taint his name, let us put, his, let us put it to a swift end. In his name we pray all these things. And amen. Thank you, church.